Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at this extraordinary moment in our history. It remains the great busha, the great stain, the great humiliation, the great disappointment um, of our history, and things are described in terms of this moment um, whenever it is that this people loses faith. Uh, this is the paradigmatic moment of, of divine human in our history, um, the, the great moment of rupture. And so for the rabbis, this remains like one of the darkest moments in Israelite history and in Jewish history uh, in terms of what we do, right? This is, you know, one of those moments, the, the great moment of of betrayal. I happen to think this story is really one of our greatest in terms of accessing this mythology to talk about what happens all the time. Like, I... I I really think this is one of the great stories for us um, that that really talks about the ways that we are human, the ways we are limited, uh, and and what happens for us um, lots of times. And, and, and we'll get into that. Um, so I love this story. I love this story because I think it happens all the time. And it's a great reminder um, about how we can do things differently. Uh, I think it is a call to do things differently because it's a, it's a real description of the danger of when we behave, right, in ways that are just kind of, um, instinctive uh, and just out of our, our limited human capacities. So let's remember where we are, um, because we didn't read the beginning of Kitisa. So Moshe has gone up to the mountain. Why did Moshe go up to the mountain to receive Torah? He had a better view up there. Oh God my. said to the people they couldn't approach the mountain. So they couldn't approach the mountain, but, they couldn't go up. but God was ready to talk to them and give them the whole business. Pam, why didn't that happen? Because they could not deal with it. They heard, as far as the rabbis say, they heard only the, the first aleph, the first silent opening of revelation, and they flipped out. They couldn't handle it. They were flattened, according to the language of the Midrash. And so they say to Moshe, you go. You go talk to God. We we can't handle it. We're, we're not interested. This is too much. So God was ready to directly share with the people the gift of Torah, the gift of how to live in right relationship to each other and the divine. And they couldn't handle it. And they send Moshe. So in the, uh, we're going to look at Aviva Zorenberg because she has an amazing read of this episode. Um, but I want to plant the seeds of where she goes. Um, they're dependent on Moshe. They depend on Moshe. They can't deal with God themselves. And so they depend on Moshe to go uh, translate, right, to, to receive this gift for them. And then he'll give it to them. He's an intermediary. He, he's their intermediary because they want one. They want one. 
Right. It's not that they're not interested, it's that they are too afraid to do it themselves. They're still interested enough to send Moshe. Yes, they are interested. They are not interested in learning or receiving directly from the divine. That that's they're they're like, nope, we can't do that. Is it that or they're afraid of getting zapped? Mm-hmm. So all we're told is that their response to hear you know, to to being in any way exposed to divine revelation is that they they are flipping out. Now, why? Because because they think it's going to zap them. Because they uh, we we are not told. Torah does not tell us. So we we can certainly imagine what might be happening. I would say that they're overwhelmed. They're just they're not prepared for the experience of the divine. They are just it's too far a leap from where they've been recently to to that kind of responsibility of presence. Correct. So, and a human overlord. Human. So, so exposure to the divine overlord seems to be overwhelming. Because, right. you know, their association with power is not terrific. Okay? Which is the human condition, right? We all have been in situations where we've been harmed by powerful forces in our lives. Yes? All right. So, so Moshe's up there. What does Moshe tell them? I'll be back soon. I'll be back soon. Right? I'll be back soon. Don't worry about it. I'll be back. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to hang out. And then I'm going to be back. How long does Moshe say Moshe's going to be gone? Is this an open book test? Is this an open book test? Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. I'm right. going to rely on so right so they're they're assuming 40 days why 40 why 40 days because that's what we always do right why do we always do that why do we always do 40 days <laughs> we're in a rut because they knew it was going to be 40 years. God forbid. Because they don't know nothing about that. Well, because this is writing like the gestation backwards. period for a baby or something like so that. So 40 is gestation. 40 is gestation. So 40 is how long it takes to do something fully. Always. 40 days and 40 nights it rains in one version. 40 days and 40 nights Moses on Mount Sinai. Forty days and forty nights, Elijah's in the desert. Forty years they're wandering in the desert. Forty is the number of completion, of a huge cycle of completion. Right? Right? All right. If I say so. 
And I do. All right. So let's go to um, where. So 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 forty days and forty nights. That is where we pick up. We pick up at the end of that period of time at verse eighteen. Somebody read. When he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the pact, stone tablets inscribed with the finger of God. All right. Who's he here? God. God. When God finished speaking with him, meaning Moshe, on Mount Sinai, verse 18, God gave Moses the two tablets of the pact. Not a great translation. Um, Edut. What's Edut? What's Aid? Yes. Gave Moshe the tablets of witness. They are a symbol, a witness of what's transpired between God and Moshe. God has downloaded, according to our tradition, the entire Torah. Not just ten. The ten are symbolic of the rest of the Torah. They are inscribed with the very finger of God. Right? Says the Midrash. What does that mean? It means that the letters went all the way through the stone, but you could read them no matter which way you turned them. Magic. (laughs) This says inscribed with the finger. Mm Hmm? I would think it would be by the finger. In Hebrew, it's b. So it's the prefix b in. By, with. Oh, does, you have to pick in English. Does that have anything to do with the reason why we use a yod? Yod? No. But now it can. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's because we can't touch the... Well, who who am I to say no? So, sure. (laughs) Absolutely. At at this point, do we know what's in those tablets? It says the fact, but... Right. So, the, the tradition is that it is the Ten Commandments. So, this is the second set of tablets, yes? Or is this the first set of tablets? First set of tablets. So the first set of tablets was carved by whom? God. Carved by God. With the finger of God it's written and given to Moshe. All of it is a gift. A gift. All right. So here's this moment of reception. Moses is receiving. And while Moshe is receiving this gift on behalf of the people... Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Bert. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who shall go before us. For that man Moses who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and, and cast in a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, 
This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron announced, Tomorrow shall be a festival of the Lord. Early next day, the people offered up burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat and drink and then rose to dance. Go. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, oh, Sarah's reading closely. Well, the, um, it, it implies that Aaron is telling them to get the, ear, the earrings, mm-hmm. and Aaron is the one who's leading this. Yeah. And, and then he, he says something that's tomorrow shall be a festival of Adonai. Oh, so that's very confusing. That's very confusing. Good, close reading, Sarah. <clears throat> so when the people see Kiboshesh Moshe, this is a Hapax Legomenon. Boshesh. What is a Hapax Legomenon? A word that appears once in Torah. So, boshesh. This means to delay. Right? The, when the people see that Moshe delays in coming down, la redet, right, to come down, vayikahel ha'am al aharon, and the nation congregates, kahal is congregation, kehilat Israel is our name, right? Con- the, they congregate al Moshe. I mean al Aharon. So it can mean literally on Aaron, against Aaron. It does not. It does not imply with. So the interpretation of the rabbis to exonerate Aaron, which they must. We don't have to. The rabbis must. Is that they leap on that preposition? And say the people threatened Aaron, right? They they gang up on Aaron, who's now, right? You can imagine him kind of flattened back against you know the wall, like saying, "Vayom Ruelav," saying, "Kum, get up, Aselanu Elohim, make us a god, Asher Yelchulifanenu." That will go before us. Kize Moshe. Interesting. They're going to leap on this word too. Kize Moshe. And your translation does not pick it up. I bet you. Because this Moses guy. Ze Moshe Haish. This Moses guy that brought us up from the land of Egypt. Lo yadanu me'ayala. We don't know. What's happened to him? All right. So, for the rabbis, it's very clear that they have they are threatening Aaron. There's a faint suggestion of that with this word "al." What we do know is that the people are are saying to Aaron, "Get up and make us a god that's going to walk before us." Yes, Reuben. Uh, the uh, word that's used here is they gathered against Aaron, which is very plain to me. Right. Right. So, so that is how this Hebrew preposition is translated in your text. Against. Okay. So, so the argument against Aaron would be what? 
mean, the argument that he that he did it, that he didn't say no, no, no. That he didn't right. say what? No. No, why did the they people? No. Yeah. But they forced him. Wait since they it. forced him that it's not his fault. He was not no. for it. He what? Aaron was not for it. People did it against his. Mm. But they say to him, get up and make it for us. What could he have said? No. No. Or? Have faith. Be patient. Have faith. Do you remember those plagues? Do you remember the whole water thing? Right? Pharaoh's army drowning. Remember that whole thing? Do you think that power has all of a sudden evaporated? He doesn't do anything to in any way answer the anxiety and the fear of the people and try to move them to a place of faith. He jumps right into the gold. Then how come he's not punished? Some way there's no there seems to be no condemnation of his act. Whereas Moses doesn't go into the promised land because he struck a rock instead of speaking to it. Very, and this would seem to be a lot worse. A very, very interesting question. Aaron is made high priest after this. Well, maybe being high priest isn't all that great. Aha. Uh-huh. So one way to read it is Aaron is in fact punished. He's made high priest. And then his boys. His boys. So that's the proof. The death of Nadav and Avihu, his sons, is proof that being high priest ain't a picnic. Because if you screw up one little thing, you're toast. But this is screwing up one really big thing. This is screwing up really big. So possibly the punishment is you will live with the responsibility of making the relationship between me and this people right forever. Forever. Into generations, right? It'll be a genealogy thing, whatever we keep, hereditary, right? So all your kids, all your sons will take on the responsibility forevermore of making this relationship right, right? So that's certainly one way to read it. However, you know, one would imagine that the Torah that God is giving to Moshe includes Aaron being high priest. Correct. We, we don't know uh, what he said or did, except that he went ahead and, and uh, did what they said. We don't know. We know nothing. We know nothing. So the rabbis who want to defend him, what do you think the rabbis say who want to defend Aaron? Why does he do it? He just tried to distract them. <laughs> He's trying to distract them. He's trying to keep them busy because they're murderous, and he knows he's got to give them something. And if he hangs on long enough and, you know, whatever, then Moshe's going to come back and it'll all be fine. Others say Aaron thinks Moshe's dead. Aaron doesn't know if Moshe's coming back. 40 days and 40 nights and, you know, very little food and water. You know, like, there's, so if Aaron's freaking out, Aaron might be doing anything he can to, like, figure out what's next. Maybe if Moshe doesn't come back, maybe... The worship of yud Hey vav Hey is going to be this new way because that's the only way these people are going to access it. There's an interesting parallel here because a couple of parshiot ago, God says to Moses, have the people bring gifts 
right, to make the uh, breastplate for the priests. That they will bring gifts. That they, that they will. And here, what do they do to make the golden calf? They bring gifts. Absolutely parallel. Absolutely parallel. That one, they bring gifts for a bad purpose. And so the rabbis want to read it as, which I love, is that the gifts they give to build the mishkan, right, are atonement for, for this. In a very interesting tradition in our midrashic, can somebody turn that blower off? It's just ridiculous. It's like, why is it 73 and yet it's blowing? (sighs) I know, the teeth chattering. Thank you. Um, In a very interesting twist, there is a midrashic tradition that you, and I've told you before this phrase, Ein mukdam or meuchar batorah. There's no early or late in Torah. Meaning, we can't read it always chronologically. We're just given it because we're human. We need a story to unfold linearly. But this is all just, you could throw up the whole deck of cards and see where they land and learn that way too. There is a tradition of reading this the other way. That the Mishkan was built first and then the calf happened. So it's a very, really interesting things happen if you read it in reverse. Yes? I was going to say, it's interesting that they decide, having seen Aaron at Moshe's side the whole time, they could have said, you're our leader now to Aaron. But they chose to go back to their old idolatrous ways. You know, it's like they had the rabbi and the assistant rabbi. Why not? So, but in a way, they might be going to Aaron as their leader to say, you're going to be the leader. Do something. You, you need to do what we tell you as our leader, which is build an idol. And you can still be the representative of yud hey vav We need, however, they're dependent on something to, right, to, 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 to walk before us. We need something to see. Concrete. We need something concrete. We need tachlis. Don't talk to me about ideas. We tried that. 40 days and 40 nights, he hasn't come back. We need tachlis, not this invisible God stuff anymore. Uh, to your point about uh, there's no early and late and everything can be mixed up, just the point I want to check. I went back to the end of Utro to see what the send-off was like when when Moses went up the mountain. And what's interesting, uh, as I'm sure you remember, and I surely didn't, is that the first thing, uh, it's not even clear when it happens. It just says Moses approaches the mountain, and God says to Moses, thus used to say to the people, don't you dare build any idols out of gold or silver. Uh, and then, you know, you go a couple more partial where you get a bunch of other stuff, and then you're back with this happening. Does it say that Moses was a, said that? Or that just God told God Moses said to that. say? Thus you shall say to the Israelites, oh, so. don't do this. So we don't know yet when did that happen? if really? they've been told that. You know, that's the point. But the, God certainly knows right that one of the big dangers don't you do that? is exactly this. right right your toddler doesn't have to do certain things before you say don't touch that right because you know 
they're going to touch it, right? It's just too, it's too tempting. It's just how they're designed. They're going to reach for it. You don't have to, you don't have, they don't have to ever have touched a hot stove for you to know that thing lights up and they're going to reach for it, right? So it seems God knows that they're, they're just, we, we are designed to build idols. That's how we're put together. So, and we're going to talk about it. Believe me. Call them ah, so to Sarah's point that Laura is echoing. So Aaron says, take off the gold, right? Take off your rings and your, your wives' earrings and all the gold off your children and bring it to me. And they took off the gold rings and they brought it to Aaron. This he took from them. He cast it in a mold. We don't know what this Hebrew means. This it, this does not seem to be a technique that you do with gold exactly. If you're going to, you know, make something big, gold is very soft. It would take so much gold to make a, a solid. Cal- so this is probably a wooden calf with gold right laid over it, and then it's carved with a tool. You know, what do you call that when you? etch or etching, you know, with the tool to do the detail work, but whatever. So he made it into a molten calf, right? So we don't know how long that takes. We don't know anything about that process. What do we know when Aaron says later to Moshe, what happened? What does Aaron claim later happened? You read ahead. It says, like, I just threw the stuff in there and out came this calf. I threw the gold in the fire and and out popped this calf. I don't know where all those weird hands came from. Right, Eliana? How did this get broken? I don't know. I came into the living room and it was on the table and it broke. Really? Right, so, so the gold came from Egypt, didn't it? The Egyptians came from Egypt. And it was the, it was the nice gifts they gave their slaves. Mm-hmm. And by the way, here's, some nice, here's all our gold. The gold is somewhat dubious from it. It wasn't stolen. Was whatever. So you know, no good will come of something that was taken that way. Lovely, lovely. Good does come from it. So a gift taken. From duress, let us be very, very careful how we use such a acquisition. The Mishkan is, is made from those very same materials, so, so good does come from it. So good can come from it, and our first instinct <laughs> is not is not a good one. So so he <clears throat> makes the calf and they exclaim. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And again, I wish the translation, my translation, it doesn't do it. I wish it would have, um, which is to use the very same words that God is using to Moshe, right? And that, um, that they use it. It's to bring up from the land of Egypt. The, you know, that, that this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron sees this, right, he built an altar before it. So Aaron makes the calf, and they say, 
This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron sees this and builds an altar and says, Tomorrow shall be a festival to Chag, festival, to Yudhei They got up early in the morning, right? Always when you're rushing and eager to do something in Torah, you do it, you get up early in the morning. Avraham is asked to take his son to the mountaintop. He wakes up early in the morning to do it. So they get up early, they uh, offer up burnt offerings, they bring sacrifices of greeting, um, and they sit down to eat and drink, right? That's what you do when you have a chag. Even in the temple, that's what you do. You bring stuff, you sacrifice, you eat, and then you make merry. So they are going to get up to litzachek. What does litzachek mean? Hmm? Oh, does it? That's, that's the translation. Yeah, it is. Because what's litzachek literally mean? It says laughing. Like make merry? Hmm. Litzachek literally means to play. To play. So where do we see this word in Genesis? Some people are litzacheking. Mitzacheking. Who mitzachekes in Genesis? <laughs> huh? Sarah observes Yishmael mitzacheking with Yitzchak. And do you remember we weren't so clear? We lifted up that we don't know what that means. Making fun of, teasing. Could mean something else because who else does this business? How does the king know that Rebecca is not, in fact, Isaac's sister? He sees them mitzacheking on the roof. <laughs> so it must be a playful kind of activity that brothers and sisters do not generally engage in with one another. So it's not likely making fun because they do that as sport. Bullying? Okay, they do that. It was, it was proof they were not brother and sister. All right, there's a very, very real possibility that that word has sexual connotations. If so, what's happening here? They are having an orgy. Vazemir. Carol's shocked. That's not unusual. So, so to Bert's point, what, why, why would that make sense? Why am I pushing that that probably makes sense? Egypt! Canaan! If you have a fertility festival, what do you do? You fertilize. Because that's how you make the crops grow. You take the representative of the divine who down here does what you want to have happen cosmically. Of course. Everyone knows that in pagan religion. Duh! If they're going to go back to a pagan expression, it makes perfect sense that that sex, sacred sex would be part of that uh, 
celebration. Also, they have been very stressed and anxious. And now they have been released. They have been very stressed and very anxious, as Sarah reminds us. And we all know what better release for that state than than this. So. <laughs> Meditation is one form, Paula, of of release for stress. Um, when I think about dancing certainly. about, dancing about, I go about the English, I go back to Miriam and the women after the Song of the Sea, and I just look here, and it's not the same verb. That's right, because there Even it says dance. English, right. In English, it's translated dance in both places, but it's not the same thing in both places. That's right. Deviant. All right. So, so I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not pushing my translation. I'm just saying. I think what it says, "Litzachek" to play. To even if we say to make merry, it suggests something that is not exactly wholesome. Thank you, Pam. Not exactly kosher. Aren't they basically doing Egyptian and Canaanite? Uh, worship, but calling it Yudhe Bavhe? So, so this becomes, for me, the compelling question. What have they done wrong exactly? People want to say they've apostatized. I disagree. They, people want to say they are worshiping something other than Yudhe Bavhe. I don't think so. They are worshiping Yudhe Bavhe. So, and the way that they know how. Why is that so bad? Moshe isn't back. They haven't been taught another way. Why is it so bad? They're going back to what they know. Will they change? Will they change? They haven't been given instructions how to change. Why are we, why are God and Moshe so mad at them? Because they didn't have faith. In faith, tell me more about that. They didn't have faith that what? That they would get the answer from Moses. They, they, they lost their, how can I say, they let their fear overcome them. Ha. Ha. Okay. This is the critical lesson of this narrative, I think. It's not that they strayed from worshiping the one true force in this world that's God. It's that they turned immediately when they're afraid and anxious, they turn immediately to doing that the way they know best, which isn't the real picture. It's a substitute for the real force that is Yudhe Vavhe. They point to something tachless, concrete, to say this is the totality of Yudhe and that is always idolatry. And this is what we do. We turn to one little piece I can grasp and say this 
is the totality and or I think it's just my own personal way to interpret this out of my own story, I guess. They turn to something familiar. They turn to something and say this. They say this, make this, make Make something for us, and this is yud heh vav that brought us up from the land of Egypt, meaning we want it to show up in our lives how we want it to look. Guess what? That ain't really then yud heh vav And we want it right away. And we want it right now. And the way I say it looks. Happiness, success, this is how I want that to show up in my life, and I want it now. If you're really, right, open and working into what Yudhe Vavhe has going on, then you shut up and get out of the way and success and happiness will manifest in the way Yudhe Vavhe determines. And when Yudhe Vavhe determines, not you, Amy Bernstein. That is incredibly difficult for us. I want it now, and it needs to look the way I want it to look. What I'm familiar with as power, right, as success. Gold from Egypt in a shape and form I recognize that I've been sold in the media. Because if I were thinner, y'all, and if I were richer, for sure I'd be happier. We all know this, right? If I were thinner, whiter, younger, and richer, of course I would be happy, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, we, this is what we do all day long without even being aware of it, right? If we had a gold cow thing and an altar, we're good. <laughs> nah. You think Having had the experience of seeing the, the plagues um, and seeing the sea part, and actually, for even a brief moment, hearing yourself, the voice of God, or whatever they experienced, they had a whole bunch of evidence that we don't have in, in our lives. Oh, really? Right. Really? Really? So I've never had an experience of shutting up and getting out of the way and having success and happiness manifest. Of course I have. No, but we haven't seen, you know, the plagues happen. We haven't seen the sea part. We haven't had a heard the voice of God. Now you could do it metaphorically, but they actually. I don't buy it. That. I don't buy it. I believe we see it all the time. Okay. We see the divine truly at work in our lives all the time. And it takes us five minutes to forget. I'm saying I'm saying basically the same thing because I was going to then add that they actually have this incredible powerful experience and they right away turn. So for us, it's very now and maybe it's built into human beings. We lose faith very fast. We forget really quickly. Yeah. Right? Those we've seen it manifest in our lives that when we get out of the way and allow we wind up successful and happy. But we get all, but what happens? What happens out of our human experience is something happens that triggers our fear, our anxiety, 
our brokenness, our loneliness, our suffering, fill in the blank. And that seems to be instant amnesia, (laughs) right? And we forget all those times where we saw the plagues, all the ways we walked through the, the water that opened up miraculously for us. And we, we immediately reach for the golden calf. We, we reach for the idol. We go on Amazon and buy a pair of shoes. We go on Amazon and we buy a pair of shoes. <laughs> this is reminding me of something that a friend of mine was describing that she and her husband had these very different life views. He had a goal that he really always wanted to work towards. And when he hadn't achieved that, he felt lost because this was the goal and here he was. But she felt like, well, I'm just going to do what comes, you know, what makes sense this day and then the next day and the next day. So there wasn't something out there that she was then not, you know, there wasn't a mark that she hadn't met. But how do you then sort of rectify this? I'm not going to measure things by the familiar success without having a goal that you're also then working toward. Okay, so so this is where it gets really complicated. And here is, I think, the gorgeousness of the lesson. So they're not so far apart in some ways, right? Because what gets built next, what gets built? A box made out of wood. Covered in gold on the outside and the inside that is truly representative of worshiping Yudhe So they're not so far apart. What's different is what's at the center. Is it space for exploring how do I get to that goal? The goal's fine. I want to live a life of productivity and meaning and success and happiness and I want to have enough money to have food for my daughter and be able to go to the symphony every now and then and fly to see friends, right? So that's there's nothing wrong with having a goal that we say it looks like this. Can we create enough space at the center of that, keep at the center of that Torah, be busy with that. How do I act respectfully? How do I do my work in a way that's expressive of holiness? How do I take the money I am earning and using it rightly? Right? All giving tzedakah, protecting the innocent. If I'm about all of that, the goal will manifest or it won't, but it's fine having the goal. If I go to wood and gold that's solid and filled with itself, if I go to a closet of shoes, and I'm about buying more shoes every single day. <laughs> it's filled with itself. Like I'm going to get more of the stuff that means success. I'm going to get more of the experience of purchasing or buying or eating good food. Because that means I'm successful. Right? When I cram it full of itself, it's idolatry. And it's never enough. And it's never enough. Because it's connected to and control, right? It's got to show up the way I say or the media say, right? So, but this is what happens when we live in a small ego, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so these people wanted Moshe to go because they were not ready spiritually, they were not open uh, 
they didn't see at themselves as part of holding. Correct. And, and as we know, because we've read ahead, years and years and years we've been reading ahead, they never do. This generation is too broken. It can't. They die in the desert. God learns along the way that they can't. They won't be able to. Their children go in. Our children go places, if we're lucky, that we can't. Right? You know, people say to me, your daughter is your clone. And I say, thank you. She's me without the damage. That's my greatest hope, right? Is that I can parent her. She'll have her own damage for me. I get it. Like, I'm not <laughs> delusional. <laughs> um, but I hope, right, the damage that, that she carries is significantly less than the damage I carry. Because my true hope is that she'll make it in. She'll go in, she'll go in to the promised land. And I'll be looking from the mountain over the border going... You know, yay. In our culture, I couldn't get over all this jewelry talk. In <laughs> college, women would come in and show their ring. That was their highest point. They had this ring. And what did that mean, Blanche? If that ring were really, really big, what did that mean? They made it. That's success. That's happiness. The bigger that rock, the more successful, the happier I am because I've made it. And if that ring is really, really tiny. I was lucky that I had a father who wanted me to have the college degree. And that was my ring. That your father said, right, let your diamond be... An education, a college education. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And then, and so you went to college instead of having the husband be the the mark of success, and you got Reuben. <laughs> Honey, you hit the jackpot. <laughs> you got them both. I've got them 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's look. Uh, Trust in something that are not immediately visible and that really run through our lives in very constructive ways. So rather than concrete, big stuff or little stuff. Right. So let's look at Aviva Zorenberg, you know, one of my favorite teachers from her book, The Particulars of Rapture, which is her book on Exodus. So I'm at page 400 and 401. I'm, I don't want to read too much because we don't have a lot of time, I know, but um, please read it at home. It's really, it's sublimely insightful as always. But she she looks at this word boshesh that he delays, right? And she says the people are completely focused on time. Moshe is suspended out of time on the mountaintop receiving truth from the divine. He is completely removed from the realm of time, right? In this intimate moment with God. And the people are counting, right? 
And so she points to this Midrash, go down to a Midrash by Rashi, the bottom paragraph on page 400. Moses was delayed, an expression of lateness. When Moshe ascended the mountain, he told them in 40 days time, I will be back in the first six hours of the day. Rashi's playing on Boshesh. Take out the vowels and rearrange them. And how can you make Boshesh mean something about by the six first six hours of the day? I'll be back. Boshesh. By six. In six. I'll be back in six. In 40 days. In six. Meaning in the first six hours of the day. But the people started counting right? During the day and not that night. So he's late. He didn't make it in the first six hours of the day because they started counting at the wrong time. So they've counted 40 days for six hours and he's not back. Beautiful, fun, amazing, tongue in cheek, I think in some ways, reading by Rashi. No, he says, I'll be back in 40 days. They say, Boshesh. He's late, but Rashi says, because he said, Bashesh, I'll be back in the first six, right? So Rashi's playing with this, beautifully playing with this word. In other words, the rabbis are trying to account for why the people think he's late. Why do they think he's delayed? They they have to have miscounted. So every all the rabbis try to figure out where they went wrong, this is Rashi's interpretation, but she she pulls it up for a reason, right? Um, blah, 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 blah. She brings this tradition that Satan comes and throws the world into chaos. He shows them an image of darkness and deep fog and chaos, as if to say, surely Moses is dead, and that's why chaos has come to the world. So Rashi and other rabbis want to come to the rescue of the people, they seem to be going light on the people, right? They want to excuse these people and our ancestors, right? Our people, our ancestors, right? So Satan comes and, and does smoke and mirrors saying, Ooh, look, the world's come undone. Must mean Moshe's dead. And there's another one where it says this Moshe guy. It should say that Moshe. It doesn't. It says this Moshe. One Midrash says Satan created an illusion of Moshe on a funeral pier. Pyre, beer, pyre, whatever it's called, pyre. Um, And so that's why they say this Moshe is is dead. He's not coming back. That's why he says this, because they're looking at him. But they're looking at a a delusion, an image that Satan has created. Mapitom, Mapitom Burtz. Of course, Satan is part of our tradition. What is Satan not? The devil. Correct. Satan is the prosecutor. Satan is always looking to mess up the Jewish people. Right? Satan doesn't want the Jewish people to be in relationship with the divine and to be happy. God forbid. So Satan's always trying to throw things, right, in in Israel's path to, to mess us up. So that then Satan can say, see, see, they're unworthy. How, how could you even think about entering a deal with these people? They're unworthy. Right. So 
La, 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 la. Let's drop it down. All right. Rashi citing the Talmud. Middle of page 401. Somebody read that paragraph. Rashi citing the Talmud. Rashi citing the Talmud explains the rational basis for the misunderstanding. The calculation of the 40-day period is distorted by a full 24 hours if the count begins by day instead of at night. The idolatrous project of the golden calf, in effect, is predicated on an ambiguity for which Moses is at least partially responsible. This ambiguity apparently technical in nature, produces a time lag in the people's expectations, and the residue of that time lag is the golden calf. All right, why do I love this? Because what she's saying is the real issue is is an ambiguity. He said he'd be back. But he's not back. Like, did he mean yesterday? Is it, what was the date today? You know, like, so it's ambiguous when, when exactly he was coming back. And that ambiguity and their expectation and then it not being met and there's this time lag, that's the anxiety. That's the anxiety. Longing for Moshe who hasn't come back. Hang on to that. Hang on to that. She's going to fill it out for us. You know she's not going to disappoint us. You know she's not. So go down to the very bottom of page 401. I love this, I love this, I love this so much. She points to D.W. Winnicott's work, Playing and Reality. Read it, Sarah. You chuckled. Read read the bottom two sentences of 401 and go on. The feeling of the mother's existence lacks zero minutes. Lasts X minutes. If the mother is away more than X minutes, then the imago fades, and along with this, the baby's capacity to use the symbol of the union ceases. All right, let's hang on to that. A baby gets anxious when mommy isn't there because if I can't see mommy, what does that mean? Mommy doesn't exist. But I can, I, I, I can hold mommy's image in my little tiny infant imagination for X minutes. So for X minutes, mommy's not present, but mommy exists. Right? So let's just get that. Mommy isn't here, but I can hold her image for X minutes, so she still exists. We're going to go there, Paula. So, right? The baby is distressed. So I know it's not mommy, and so I'm stressed. But I trust mommy still exists because I have her in my imagination and I have a symbol of her, of union with her. My lovey, her smell. I don't, you know, whatever it is that the baby has in its imagination that has mommy represented somehow, I'm distressed. But it's okay. I'm then mended according to his Winnicott because the mother returns in X plus Y minutes. Right? In X plus Y minutes, the baby has not become altered. But in X plus Y plus Z minutes, the baby has become traumatized. Traumatized because the baby has been abandoned. 
Or did they be experiencing? Yes, that's the only reality there is for the baby. I have been abandoned. I am alone in a universe without mommy. She doesn't exist. And the baby doesn't have the words to um, talk about. Doesn't have we, I believe we never get over this moment and we never have the words. It is an ineffable experience of trauma when we are left for X plus Y plus Z minutes. We existentially come apart. We have been abandoned. That is our real lived experience and we are traumatized. We must assume that the vast majority of babies never experience the X plus Y plus Z quantity of deprivation or we'd all be crazy or we'd all have attachment disorder. Most of us don't have attachment disorder. We might have an insecure attachment. We might have, right, but an anxious attachment, but we attach most of us. This means that the majority of children do not carry around with them for life the knowledge from experience of having been mad. Madness here simply means a breakup of whatever may exist at the time of a personal continuity of existence. So most of us do not know that level in infancy. I believe she's bringing Winnicott to say, but we all go through really coming close we come really close and the minute we're at x plus y right we start to get really anxious and it's about a longing for connection a longing to belong a longing to be in relationship a desire towards the love object whatever it is that isn't returned right now And we get so panicked that we come apart a little bit, right? And she's saying, Aviva Zornberg now, madness is, I suggest, the condition of the people experiencing X plus Y plus Z quantity of Moshe deprivation. I put Moshe in, she didn't. Some essential root of continuity with the personal beginning, has for them been snapped. That this is a question of time, of lateness, is only apparently a trivial circumstance. For time is of the essence in questions of attachment and separation, trust and trauma. I can be single for a certain amount of time. But if I reach X plus Y plus Z... Do I believe the universe is a loving place? Apparently not. (laughs) Apparently not. Do I have hope that truly I'm lovable? No. No. I don't believe I'm lovable because frankly underneath everything is I don't really believe I'm lovable. Right? That's really the set point in some ways for all of us. I'm lovable if I'm good. I'm lovable if I'm smart. I'm lovable if I'm doing what I'm supposed to. If I'm behaving, if you're a girl, for sure. So there's there's an experience of X plus Y plus Z that leads me to I am not 
lovable. And that anxiety is a state of what Winnicott is calling madness that Aviva Zornberg says leads us to reach for the calf. We want to be seen. Face to face is what's happening for Moshe on the mountain right now. Because they said we can't handle it. He's face to face with the divine. While they flip out down here saying, where's Moshe? There's no one to see us. Right After projecting the intensity of being seen. It's a, it is profoundly beautiful and heartrending the way this narrative, I think, truly does represent so much of our experience, of, of our lives, of our, of our existential situation. Yeah? So they're dependent on Moshe, right, in a way that's, that she calls a fetish. Right? He's fetishized by them. Um, so drop down. To see the genesis of the golden calf, of fetishisms and idolatries in a projection of divine power onto the image of Moses is to remember the people's plea in the very heart of revelation. You speak with us and we will listen, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Later, I don't know. Okay, good. So uh, you have to buy the book, apparently, to read the rest. So that was a teaser. Uh, so anyway, so go back up to the middle paragraph. God tells Moses, the people's corruption consists in their projecting all power onto you, Moshe, this people you brought up from Egypt. They are hyper-focused on you. In other words, Meshe Chochma implies, she's, she's quoting a, a, a commentator here, idolatry has begun long before the golden calf emerges from the fire. Moses himself has become a fetish in the sensibility of the people. In Winnicott's terms, a madness of discontinuity has afflicted them, in which they are unable to use Moses in his absence, unable to sustain the personal psychic reality of his image. And they panic. In the words of Rabbi Yael Shai, who I gave you yes, Drop down to the very last paragraph of her first page. Most of us have probably had experiences very similar to this. Times when the heat and discomfort of fear is so intense, it's almost intolerable. I know in my life there have been times when the intensity of anxiety of not knowing what the future holds and of feeling afraid and alone have led me to reach out not just for external and familiar quick fixes like television or substances, but also for tired and well-worn storylines about whatever it is I'm anxious about in a desperate attempt to gain control. Things like 
this will never work out. Don't get your hopes up. I knew this, I know this thing I'm trying will fail. I'm this type of person, so this will turn out this way, etc., etc., etc. We know these? How long would it take you to come up with three or four of your own? Who do you think you are? Right? Just the tape runs, right? Familiar, worn out, old storylines that we immediately turn to to explain everything when we're afraid. Because it's it's not here yet. What I'm wanting is not here now. And it has to look the way I want it to, right? And that it's still out there somewhere is so terrifying that, and we're so lonely. Underneath the fear, she says, of course, is vulnerability. It's always about vulnerability. What do we do? Because it's really, she says, drop down to the fire of desire. The terror of not knowing is something else also. A great desire. The people's hearts are on fire with desire for connection and to not be alone. They are aflame with the desire to feel loved and cared for. The flip side of all anxiety is actually desire. That's, that's intense. The flip side of all anxiety is actually desire. We are afraid of not getting something we want because we want it so badly. It is a directly proportional relationship. The worse we want it, the worse the pain, the anxiety of being afraid we're never going to get it. Truly a, a spiritual insight, I think, Beautifully represented in this story. Uh, and so then the question becomes, how do we then not make a calf? <laughs> right? And so, of course, for this teacher of mindfulness, you can find her text through the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. I, I've signed up for a subscription to get her piece every week. This is what I was talking to you about. Um, she, in the, in the page I didn't copy for you, she, she talks about the first step is to sit down, shut up, and breathe. We have to learn how to hold our seat, as Pima Chodron says, in the face of our own fear, in the face of our own pain and loneliness and anxiety and sadness. We have to learn to sit down and breathe through it and not over-identify with it and not go to the same old stories. This always happens to me. I knew this would happen, right? We, we, that's the danger. That's where we go. And if we can learn to sit and shut up and be quiet and breathe, that's one practice. You know, exercise. You know, get on a bike and spin it out. Go for a walk. Go for a hike. Go to the beach. Take a walk. All of it is about not running from all of that and turning to a familiar pacifier because it doesn't work. It pacifies me in the moment so I don't panic, right? Because I'm afraid of my own panic, aren't I? I'm afraid I'm not strong enough to survive my own fear and my own existential angst. That's our real fear is I won't survive it. I'm not strong enough to survive my own grief. I thought my father's death would kill me. I really did. 
there were moments I thought this will kill me because I, I cannot hold this kind of sadness and rupture. I can't. I'm not, I'm not able. I just am not able. And the teaching is, yes, you are. Because you are not, in fact, alone. We must cultivate trust and faith. And we must turn to those things that affirm that we are not alone. We come to synagogue. We call a best friend. We call a trusted mentor. We call a kid we really like. We borrow someone's dog. Right? And we cultivate experiences of, oh yeah, I am in fact loved. Oh yeah. And sometimes how do I do that best? By giving love. Taking care of somebody. Taking care of something that gets me out of my own victim crazy stuff to say I'm lovable because I'm able to love. And we cultivate a sense of I am strong enough to hold my own panic. I am able to survive my own fear and my own anxiety. And the more we cultivate that, the less reactive we get, right? The more we start to know, uh-oh, uh, right? The minute I snap at my partner, I know something's wrong with me, right? But it took being in a relationship with someone who's always good to me, who's always kind to me, who never says a crossword, and never raises her voice. I grew up in a screaming household. Plates flew, and there was a lot of yelling. So I was used to that. She never raises her voice. She never has a crossword, ever. So what has that taught me, right? I'm not going to get yelled at. I'm not going to get punished. I'm not going to get disappeared, right? All the things I'm afraid of, all the things that happened, all the things that I'm traumatized, right? All those things, that's not going to happen. When we build truly the trust and capacity to understand that's not going to happen, but I've gone there already, then I have the capacity when I snark and snap to go, aha, something's wrong with me. She hasn't done anything wrong. She never does anything wrong. <laughs> Ever. If I snap and get snarky, something's wrong with me. So I'm able now to identify, oops, that must be panic. That must be fear. That must be exhaustion. That must be stress. Right, so what are we able to do? Then we're able to go, okay, if we're, if we're working on our stuff, we're able to go, I'm gonna breathe, and I'm gonna try really hard to have enough courage to look at what might be going on. Because it's unlikely to be pretty. It is unlikely to be this blue <laughs> of this shirt, right? It is unlikely to be something I'm gonna wanna see. But we build our capacity. I can look at it, I can hold it, and I can breathe through it, and I can trust that even with that part of me, I am lovable. So we cultivate experiences of that, and of safety, and of belonging, of coming here, and sitting together in a minute, right, Mark? Um, and that, for me, is the incredibly important message of hanging in there and trusting ourselves to handle it. We can handle it. We're enough. 
And the more we do that, the more we engage in good, healthy practices, the better able we are to notice when it's starting and we don't have to go through worshiping the calf and all the mishigas that comes with that later, right? It's not pretty what happens after that either, right? Because after you eat the pint of ice cream, do you feel good? Right? When you look at the credit card bill, because, you know, consumer therapy felt good at the time, right? Does it ever really serve us? Of course not. So then how do we, right? So if when we can cultivate, when we notice that some, we don't have to go shopping, the more we strengthen our ability to notice when it's beginning and there know that there are ways we can, we can handle it that are loving and respectful and healthy and growthful and fruitful. And that will bring, my friends, peace to the world. Good Shabbos. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.